You are now listening to the November 14th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Heart and Soul listeners, this is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. We have been covering the story of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. He was considered a good king, but, as we have noted, he also had his moments of weakness. To briefly recap, Jehoshaphat agreed to ally with Ahab, the king of Israel, and embarked on a war to help Ahab take back Ramoth-Gilead. As they were about to engage the enemy force, Ahab made a strange suggestion to Jehoshaphat. He said to Jehoshaphat that he would disguise himself as if he was not the king. He then suggested Jehoshaphat to put on the king's robe so that Jehoshaphat would stand out to all as the king. Jehoshaphat foolishly agreed to the suggestion and went into the battle as the only person wearing the royal robes. Now the king of Aram commanded the captains of his chariots to concentrate their attacks only on the king of Israel. So when they saw Jehoshaphat with his king's robes on, they thought he was the king of Israel and descended on him in mass. Totally scared out of his wits, Jehoshaphat ran for his life, crying as he fled. At that moment, when his life was in jeopardy, who do you think came to his rescue? Not his ally, King Ahab. It is said in the latter part of 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 31, And the Lord helped him, and God diverted them from him. Jehoshaphat was delivered in the nick of time, and his life was spared through God's intervention. Eventually, Jehoshaphat returned to Judah with God's grace. Upon his return, Prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, came to see him and rebuked him. It is said in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 2, that if he should help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, he would bring wrath upon himself from the Lord. After the rebuke, Jehu also said a few words to encourage Jehoshaphat. Jehu said that there was some good in him. He pointed out how Jehoshaphat had removed the idols from Judah and how he had set his heart to seek after God. It seemed that through these words, Jehu wanted Jehoshaphat to remember how God protected him and Judah when he sought after God. After listening to Jehu, Jehoshaphat showed changes in his behavior. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 4 to 11 shows how Jehoshaphat changed the way God would approve. He appointed judges in all cities of Judah so he could administer God's people better. He instituted behavioral and spiritual principles for his judges in how they should carry out their duties. He told his judges to judge for the Lord, to be impartial and honest, and to render judgment so people would not sin against the Lord. He was telling them to administer justice and to lead the people spiritually so they would turn back to God. When Jehoshaphat came back, humbled from the war, and when his people started to seek after God, Moab and Ammon might have taken that to be the sign of weakness. Allied together, they came up from the south to attack Judah. Because he had taken a heavy loss in his military power from the recent war against Aram, Jehoshaphat was in fact in a weakened state and became very afraid. However, Unlike the last time when he stuck to his own personal agenda and allied with Ahab, Jehoshaphat sought the Lord God this time. In the face of an impending war, Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. He sought the help from the Lord. Whether men, women, young or old, they all came out to the Lord. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 5-12 to records his prayer 
that shows where his heart was and how he went out to the Lord. Here is a part of his prayer from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 6 and 7. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? Jehoshaphat recognized first who God was and started to pray, relying on the promise that God had given to the descendants of Jacob. While all people of Judah were praying and seeking God, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the Levite, in the midst of the assembly and delivered the word from God. Jehaziel said that the battle was not theirs, but God's, and proclaimed to the people to be still and stand to see the salvation of the Lord. At that, Jehoshaphat, all Judah, and all the people in Jerusalem knelt down before God and worshipped the Lord. The next morning, Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah went out to the wilderness of Tekoa, and Jehoshaphat spoke to his people. Here is what he said in the latter part of Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20. Listen to me, O Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord and your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. Jehoshaphat trusted God's promise and came at the war with a worshiping heart along with the people of Judah. Here is what is said in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 21. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. As they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. When they began singing and praising, God went to work. Sons of Ammon and Moab came up to attack Judah, or so they thought. With God's intervention, they actually attacked the people of Seir, destroying them completely. Then, after they destroyed Seir, they began attacking each other. The Bible records that there was no one who had escaped. It took three days for Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah to take the spoil. On the fourth day, they worshipped the Lord and returned to Jerusalem. After that, fear of the Lord fell on all surrounding countries. All the kingdoms of the land became afraid of God, and God blessed Jehoshaphat with peace and gave him rest on all sides. Jehoshaphat was victorious in an unwinnable war because he trusted God and relied on God completely. Though he showed great faith in the war against Moab and Ammon, Jehoshaphat later engaged in a foolish act that God would not approve of. He followed his own personal agenda again when it came to his dealing with northern Israel. He allied with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who was a wicked king. 1 Kings chapter 22 verses 48 and 49 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 verses 35 to 37 record how Jehoshaphat got together with Ahaziah. Jehoshaphat befriended Ahaziah to make ships to sell to Tarshish, and they would use those ships to get gold. Because Jehoshaphat befriended an evil king, God told Jehoshaphat through the prophet Eliezer that his venture with Ahaziah would not succeed. Well, Jehoshaphat did not listen to the prophet and he set sail the ships he had built to Tarshish. So what happened? Just as God had spoken through the prophet, God destroyed the ships. Perhaps Jehoshaphat came to his senses through this incident. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 49 records that when Ahaziah approached Jehoshaphat to build ships again, this time he declined. Jehoshaphat realized his wrongdoing it did not commit the same sin again. Looking back, Jehoshaphat sometimes acted foolishly, largely because of his greed, and his personal agenda got the better of him. Nonetheless, the important thing 
was that he always came back to God with a repenting heart and surrendered to God whenever he was confronted by the prophets. In all, Jehoshaphat was faithful in the sight of God as evidence in how he removed idols and made the people of Judah turn back to God. He became king when he was 35 years old, reigned over Judah for 25 years, and buried with his fathers in the city of David. We'll continue on with the stories of kings next time. Have a blessed week.
Next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Hearing and Doing. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Well, a guy uh, told his friend about his new hearing aids. Uh, He said, these hearing aids are amazing. They have completely restored my hearing. And his friend said, that's awesome. How long have you had them? And he said, about (laughs) $5,000. Well, can you hear me? You can hear me? Well, you know, when it comes to spiritual things, God expects us to do more than just hear him. God expects more than that. I want us to look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 22. James has already said, just before this, he said, let everybody be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And now he's going to elaborate a little bit more on that. Okay, now what do you do with the word of God? And he says in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James explains that there are two ways for you to respond to the word of God. One way is to hear it and to do nothing about it. Look at verses 23 and 24 one more time. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Verse 24, for he looks at himself And he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. This is a person who hears the word of God and uh, he hears what God says to him through the Bible, but he does nothing about it. He hears God's commands and he gives him a glance, so to speak, but he just moves right on. He's kind of the guy who says, well, uh, James uses this metaphor of a mirror and he says, well, hey, I've got a mirror, but when he looks into it, he just walks away and doesn't do anything about it. 
most of us look in the mirror in the morning as we're getting ready to go on with our day, right? And when you look at the mirror, you're generally looking to make sure uh, you haven't forgotten anything, that you look good. I mean, you want to make sure that uh, you've shaved guys or uh, ladies that uh, you put on your makeup right or that you look in the mirror, oh, I've still got bedhead, you know, and you better do something about that. So we often look into the mirror to correct something. Sometimes I've not taken the time to do that and people around me will say, have you looked in the mirror today? Have you looked in the mirror today? And don't you hate it? When you've eaten something like broccoli at lunch and you walk around the whole day, you've had meetings with people, you've talked to people for a long time, you have gone all day long, met uh, the folks that are important in your life or your business, and you get home and you smile And you realize there's pieces of broccoli all over in your teeth. And you think, what is the matter with people, right? Why didn't somebody point that out to me? Because I would have seen that. I would have done something about it, right? Now, the work of the word of God is like that mirror. The word of God has a compassionate work. You read of the word of God and it shows us compassion and ministers to us. The word of God has a saving work. We read the word, we hear the word, and it will save us. But the word of God also has what I call a mirror work, and that is when we look at the word of God, it reflects what we are, what it sees. Now, don't get mad at the mirror. Don't get rid of the mirror because uh, the mirror is just accurately presenting what's in front of it. If you don't look good, it's not the mirror's fault, right? It's your fault. Except, unless you're in some clothing stores. Have you noticed in clothing stores, sometimes you look really cool. Wow, look at this new shirt. That looks good. And so you buy it, you get it home, and it doesn't look good anymore. Instead of looking like this, you look like this, your normal self. You know why? Because some retail places buy special mirrors that make you look better. I want one of those. How about you? But I'd have to carry it around all the time because having a mirror that looks like that doesn't help me when people look at me. So you got to have an accurate mirror. And the Bible is that kind of accurate mirror. So if you don't like what you see, it's not the mirror's problem. It's your problem. I read a story that happened, oh, in the last century to a missionary who was in a remote place who hung a little mirror in a tree so that he could shave, you know, see. And the local witch doctor walked by and and he was curious about that little thing hanging on the tree and he looked into it. She looked into it, rather, and she jumped back and she couldn't believe what she saw. She was scared by this hideous face that she saw, painting all over her face. And right away, she began to try to talk the missionary out of the mirror. He says, I don't want to give you my mirror. I'm using it. I need it. And she just kept persisting and persisting. And finally, he relented. And he said, okay, here, take the mirror. And as soon as she got the mirror in her hand, she threw it on the ground. She stomped on it. And she said, there, it won't be making ugly faces at me anymore. Again, the problem isn't with the mirror. The problem is with us. And when the Bible points out sin, James says, you know, he's using this metaphor of of the word of God in a mirror. He says, when we look into the word of God and we see our sinful selves, it's not the mirror's fault. It's not the Bible's fault. It's our responsibility. James is saying that the mirror is... uh, the word of God, the mirror points out sin. You can say, well, I have a mirror on my wall. A lot of Christians do. I have a Bible. I have a mirror on my wall. But they never pay any attention to what the mirror shows them. I just want to ask, is the Holy Spirit asking you right now, have you looked in the mirror lately? Have you looked in the mirror lately? 
What do you really see spiritually when you look at yourself? Don't be a hearer of the word and not a doer, as James says. The second way to respond to the word of God is to hear it and do something about it. To hear it and do something about it. You could kind of call this kind of person a doer. Read on, he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Again, James makes it clear that the mirror is the word of God. It's, he says, it's the perfect law. You see that? The perfect law, the law of liberty. And he says that the person who looks intently into that will be blessed, looks intently into the law of liberty. The, the idea of looking or looking intently is this idea of scrutinizing, to get closer. It looks to bend down. It's the word that John wrote about him and Mary when they ran to the tomb of Jesus and they looked in. It's that word for look. They, they inquired. They bent down. What's in there? And so he's saying, those who come to the word of God and they look intently into the law of liberty, the perfect law, they will be blessed. God wants us to look intently into his word. We'll talk more about that next time. Jesus says that we should come to the word of God uh, humbly. That word look intently means to bend down. We should come humbly to the word of God. What does it have to say to me? How does it uh, want to change me? This means that when you hear God's word, you're going to do something about it. Not just hear it and let it go from, like we say, one ear out the other. But we're going to want to maintain it, want to obey it. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, he said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Say that again. If you love me, keep my commandments. The idea of keeping, keep my commandments. Keeping means to value them, means to treasure them. It means to do them. Keep my commandments, treasure my commandments. Do my commandments, Jesus says. Job Thousands of years ago said, I've treasured his words more than my daily meals. Job says, the word of God is more important to me than my food. You got to remember in those days, they didn't have as many, as much food as we have today. Not every meal was guaranteed. And he says, you know what? I treasure God's word. I want God's word. I love God's word more than I do a meal. That's saying a lot. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, you're going to hear what I say, you're going to hear my word, and you're going to do what I ask you to do. Now, James tells us that a wise believer will look intently into the perfect law. You see this? Into the perfect law, verse 25, the law of liberty. What is that? Well, look at verse 18. It says, of his own, he will be brought forth... uh, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth is what the perfect law, the law of liberty is. It's the word. And notice, don't leave. We don't want to move on without seeing something here. James tells us that the word of God is both perfect, perfect law. It's perfect, which means Yeah, it's without flaw, but it also means it's complete. That word perfect means complete. In other words, the word of God gives us a complete picture of who God is, what he does, how God relates to us. You want to know about God, you go to his word. Jesus came, he described God to us, he showed God to us, And we see the revelation through Jesus recorded in his word. So 
the perfect law. And then he says it's the law of what? Liberty. The law of liberty. This actually reads literally the law of the liberty. What's the liberty that we have? We're free from condemnation. We have liberty from that, don't we? We're free from the law. We're free. But in, in this context, James, as, as we'll see later, in, in this context, the chapter divisions are, um, they're not original. So James wasn't writing in chapter four, chapter two. Uh, so sometimes we don't completely understand something because there's these chapter divisions. But the context in which he's going to be writing is the problem the churches were having with uh, there being preference given to people who were more wealthy, more well-to-do, and um, people who were not were kind of looked down upon and were kind of second-class Christians. So he's dealing with this issue of um, partiality in the church. And so he's reminding them, wait a minute, you're, you're neglecting the perfect law, the law of liberty, which also in the Bible is referred to as the law of Christ. Yes, it's perfect and complete. Yes, it's, uh, we're free, but the law of liberty is also called elsewhere the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? One time people came to Jesus and they said, what is the great commandment? And Jesus says, well, the first and great commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, right? And then he says, the second is that you, who can tell me, you what? Love your neighbor as yourself. The law of Christ, that we love God, we make him predominant in our lives, God's the one who we seek after. And then that we love one another. And he's saying, look, you guys, remember the law of Christ, the perfect law, the law of liberty. You've got to love one another as Christ has loved you. And so that was the problem that was going on as well. You know, I read about a young pastor who graduated from seminary. I can so relate to this. I remember uh, when I went to my first church, he went to this first church that he was called to, and uh, he preached his first sermon at the church. And I got to tell you, uh, when I was a kid, I preached my first sermon when I was like 12, believe it or not. I was a progeny, no, not really. But uh, the people were, and it went on and on and on and on and on. I couldn't find the end. I never understood what I was really talking about. Um, it was, I am the vine and you are the branches. And I still avoid that text because it was traumatic to me. But I remember afterwards people coming up and they were so nice to me and they shook my hand. And someday you're going to make a good little preacher, you know, and those kind of encouraging words I heard. But I do remember after I graduated, first church I went to, and I remember that first sermon that I got to preach and I remember that people did come up to me afterwards and they were shaking my hand at the door and they were telling me how blessed they were. And this happened to this, this guy as well. Well, the next Sunday, he preached the same sermon. And then the next Sunday, the third Sunday, he preached the same sermon. Well, finally, the elders thought that, well, maybe we ought to meet with this, this young guy and and straighten them out, maybe find out what's going on in his life. And so they asked him, do you have any other sermons? And he said, yes. So they asked him, why do you keep on preaching that same sermon three weeks in a row? And he asked them, have you put into practice the first one I preached? And they admitted they hadn't. And he said, why should I preach another until the first really means something to you in terms of your everyday experiences? They were embarrassed and they didn't have anything to say. This brings up an important principle that ties in with everything that James is saying here. And it's this, that only truth acted upon brings more truth. Note that. 
Only truth acted upon brings forth more truth. In other words, if you're not doing something that Jesus has shown you to do, Jesus doesn't give you any more revelation. He's not going to give you any more truth, any more understanding. Because he's going to do like what this young pastor did. He's going to say, did you hear the first message I gave? I've been preaching it three times to you. And maybe that's the reason why God leaves you. It seems like I'm going over and over and over and over the same spiritual lessons. Well, because God says, we're not going anywhere else until you get this one down. And Jesus really uh, brought this out in something that he said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 11. We're told that in verse 11, his disciples, I'm reading it from the New Living Translation. It says, his disciples came and they asked him, why do you use parables when you talk to the people? You know, parable is a story that, that represents something, that illustrates something. Why do you use parables when you talk to the people? And he replied, you, you disciples, are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. In other words, they were, Jesus was teaching in parables, and some of the parables were hard to understand, and some people didn't get them. But his disciples did, and they said, well, Lord, why are you teaching this way? And you're not just putting the truth out there, plain and simple. Jesus says in verse 12, to those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little they understand, they will have taken away from them. That's why I use these parables. Jesus says, if you're intent on hearing him, he'll give you more info. He'll give you more truth. Now, when Jesus is hearing, he's not just saying, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm hearing uh, the sound waves go into my ear and registering in my brain. Jesus is, no. Hearing to the Lord means you're doing as well. So for anyone who hears my words, which also means we could say in parenthesis, doing what I say, to him I'll give more. But to the person and to these people the disciples are talking about over here who aren't getting it, they're saying, Lord, why don't you say this in a way so they'll understand it? Jesus says, you know, they're hearing my words, but they're not doing them, and I'm not going to give them any more. In fact, what they do understand will be taken away from them. That's how important it is to hear Jesus' words with the intent to do them. One uh, favorite Bible uh, scholar commentator that I like is R. Kent Hughes. And he says, for our soul's health, we must apply what we hear. I like that. For our soul's health, we must apply what we hear. For example, when our conscience is moved by a sermon or in our daily devotions, uh, we should commit ourselves to doing something, be it ever so small. Just do it. When we do this, we'll be given more truth. And then he continues. There's a world of difference between reading a menu and eating a meal. We can hear everything that's on the menu, but you see, you got to go beyond that. You got to move forward. You got to make your order. And then you've got a meal to eat. Jesus spoke of the importance of doing his word in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Look at verse 46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? Now, this is where what we're studying fits in. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. So he says, these are the people who hear what I say, and they don't just hear, and it goes in one ear out the other. They hear my word, and they do it. Here's what they're like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. When a flood arose... The stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. 
when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus says it is so important that you be a doer of the word. He says it's like somebody who builds and your life's going to stand strong. That's what the house is. Your life's going to stand firm. When the troubles hit you, when you hit all kinds of trials, you're going to be able to stand firm because you've been doing the word. You've heard Jesus' words and you're doing them. But if you're just hearing his word and you're not doing anything about it, your life will collapse. Your house is going to fall when the storms, when the trials, when the difficulties and the hard times hit you. And I think it's at times like these we realize, where have I been building my house? Have I been hearing and I've been doing? Or have I been just hearing and it hasn't had any real impact on my life? person who builds in the sand is a kind of person who's a hearer but not a doer of the word of God. person who builds on the rock is a doer, somebody who obeys. Are you hearing God's word? Are you hearing God speak to you right now, through the week, in your time with God? Have you looked in the mirror today? (laughs) How do you look spiritually? How are things really? Don't be a hearer of the word. Be a doer of the word. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that Your word speaks to us, and we want to respond in obedience. What you say we want to do. If you tell us to go someplace, we want to go there. We just want to be listening. We want to be open to you. We want to look intently into your word. And as your word is like a mirror, if there's something that we see that ought to be changed, We ask that that change would happen through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We want our house right now to be built on a solid foundation so that the storms, maybe more storms that come upon us, will not cause us to collapse. Thank you that you do speak to us, that you want us to hear your voice. And we want to be those who hear, who obey, and who move forward. In your name, Jesus, we pray.
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their life. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Following is the program, Transforming Grace. Welcome to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Programming. I'm Leslie Martin, and I'm honored to have been asked to share my book with you called Transforming Grace. Over the next few weeks, we will walk through this story that shares my heart on God's love and grace for each of our lives. While Jesus revealed he was the I am to the woman, his disciples walked up at that moment of truth. They marveled that he had been speaking with a woman because that's not something that was done at that time. God always surprises us. He acts in ways that we wouldn't expect. He's not constrained by our expectations, and there isn't a box, so to speak, that can contain him. John writes of this, Yet no one said to her, What do you seek? And none of them said to him, Why do you speak to her? John chapter 4, verse 27. The disciples came up to Jesus and the woman with the food they had bought in the village. Uh, you could think of it as Samaritan takeout. They may have been thinking, All right, we've got the food. We've got what everybody needs. But when they saw Jesus talking to the woman, they may have thought, Why is he doing that? It didn't even cross their minds to ask her, what do you need? Or to ask Jesus, what are you talking about? Why are you talking to her? Their priorities were awry, and all they could focus on was their empty stomachs. Like the disciples, how many times have we missed incredible opportunities because our focus was on our needs and priorities? The disciples were hungry and thirsty. They needed to eat, but their empty stomachs weren't the most important thing. Oh, may the Lord give us a heart that goes for the most important priorities so that we perceive God's agenda. God will take care of all our needs. He knows we have need of things to wear, places to live, and things to eat and drink. He knows our needs. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus said, Matthew six thirty three. The disciples focused only on their fleshly needs, and it didn't occur to them to ask what was going on, even though they were curious. The situation seemed strange to them, yet they kept silent. So John goes on to say, The woman left her water pot, John 4.28. She didn't leave her water pot because it was too heavy to carry back to the city or because she was in a hurry. She didn't need her water pot in a spiritual sense anymore because she had the fountain of living water. She had come to faith in her Messiah, the I Am, and so she left her water pot. She didn't need to draw from the dusty old well anymore because she had the fountain of life within. She hurried into the city where the living water flowed out of her. John continues, the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? John four twenty-eight and 29. The woman was on a grace mission. She didn't need to give a Bible study or explain that Jesus was the Messiah because she had an awesome testimony. All she had to do was go and say, Come see somebody. He knows all about me, and he still loves and accepts me. Is this the Christ? Like the woman, we don't have to have all the answers to be an effective witness for Jesus. She didn't have a Bible lesson when she went into town. She didn't try to explain the prophecies that pointed forward to Messiah. She just went into the city and said, He told me 
everything about myself. That's all it took. The people in the city were intrigued by her story. If somebody can tell you all about you, we can imagine them thinking, I want to go see this person myself. They all flocked out of the city to see Jesus because she asked them, Is this the Messiah? She didn't know very much except that Jesus knew about her. He'd accepted her. She had the living water. Like this woman, we can be effective witnesses. Sometimes we feel afraid to share Jesus because we think we don't know enough about the Bible. We think that we've got to have all the answers. We think, I can never say anything because I don't know. Some of God's most effective witnesses didn't know much other than they knew their need for God's help and that God had come to their rescue. You can be an effective witness. You don't have to possess an extensive Bible knowledge. You don't have to be afraid that someone will ask the question that you can't answer. Effective witnessing is just sharing. He helped me. I haven't figured it all out yet, but he did it. Go talk to him. I know he'll help you too. John says, They went out of the city and were coming to him. In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples therefore were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? John 4, 30-33 The clueless disciples were puzzled. They asked, Did somebody sneak out here with a sack lunch when we weren't watching? We can't be too hard on the disciples because how many times have we been clueless? I certainly don't know what God is doing all of the time. I know he's doing something, but I haven't figured it out. When I am clueless, does Jesus reject me? Does he scold? When are you going to understand? Not at all. He draws me to himself and continues to patiently guide and instruct me. The disciples urged, Lunch! You need lunch! Come on and eat! Jesus responded, I have food and you don't know about it. The bewildered disciples asked each other, Did he have something to eat? And he answered and said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 4.34 The most satisfying meal is not a physical one, but one which is spiritual. It is much more fulfilling to experience God's food. The satisfaction and excitement you feel when you see that God has used you to speak the word of God to someone, to encourage someone in the Lord, to lead someone to Christ, or to plant seeds in their life that God will use cannot possibly be compared to a physical meal. Jesus turned the disciples' attention away from their lunch by explaining, My food is not this takeout you brought me from Sychar. My food is doing the will of God. He goes on to say, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. John 4.35 As Jesus and his disciples looked toward the city of Sychar, their gaze fell on the fields between themselves and the city. The fields of grain were not white for harvest, for the harvest season was still four months away. Rather, it was all of the people who were coming from Sychar to see Jesus. Most of them wore white clothing, and in the shimmering heat, they appeared as a field of ripened grain. Jesus took that moment to teach his disciples a very important lesson. God's grace turns our attention away from ourselves and sends us on a mission. The need of that particular moment was not to eat lunch, but to reach out with God's grace to spiritually hungry people. Jesus continued, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. John four thirty six to 38 Jesus planted the truth in the heart of the Samaritan woman and she carried the seed of truth and shared it with the men in Sychar. 
The disciples had not participated in the evangelization of the Samaritans, but they would get to share in helping bring the good news to the people of Sychar. Okay, disciples, you get to enter into this. You get to reap, even though you didn't do any of the sowing or any of the preparation. You will get the joy of reaping, Jesus said. God graciously grants us the privilege of participating in bringing people to himself. Grace has given us a mission. Paul talked about this when he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth, 1 Corinthians 3.6. It is quite common for God to use many people to bring the truth to one person. In this way, all the praise goes to God and all the glory goes to the Lord. There are times when we just sow seeds of the word into people's lives and we don't see a harvest. There are other times when we come along and have the privilege of leading someone to Jesus. We had nothing to do with the preparation other people did in that person's life before we came along. We just happened to be there at the right time when they were ready to receive Jesus and we get the joy of seeing them become a Christian. That's what Jesus was teaching his disciples. Hey, you guys have been all concerned with flesh needs. All you could think about was getting some food. God doesn't exclude us from participating in the harvest because we haven't had a part in the planting of truth. Rather, his grace is amazingly inclusive, and he invites us to share in the joy of seeing people's lives transformed. John continues in John 4, verse 39. And from that city... Many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. All we have to do is turn people's attention to Jesus. Initially, they may only be interested in Jesus because of what he's done for us. We share, God worked in my life. This is what he did. But our goal is not to draw their attention to us. Rather, our goal is to point them to Jesus so that they no longer believe because of what we have said, but because they see and understand how much he cares for them. Parenting is a great example of this principle. We only have our children for a little while, and that time is given to us so that we can plant the Word of God in them. Our goal is to get their hand into the hand of Jesus so that they will trust Him the rest of their lives. We cannot always be there for them, but Jesus will always be there. Their faith and their life cannot be grounded on us, but it must be grounded on Him. We've led them to Jesus, but he's the one who will take them all the way through the rest of their lives. For our friends and for our family, our mission is to help point them to Jesus. If we can just help them look to Jesus, he'll take care of the rest. They don't have to understand everything, and they may not even believe in Jesus at first. We can get them to look in the right direction, however, and then Jesus will get a hold of them. Point your friends and family toward Jesus and plant seeds in their life by sharing what God has done for you. Get them aimed towards Jesus, and He will do the rest. Grace gives us a mission. I hope you enjoyed this portion of God's Transforming Grace. We'll see you next time. God bless.
sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we We do not carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? should never be discouraged Take it to the Lord in prayer Can we find a friend so faithful Who will all our sorrow share Jesus knows our every our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.